1: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to New Books in Gender, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Erica Bauermeister about her new book, House Lessons, Renovating a Life. Welcome, Erica.
2: Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um I actually started out in a very traditional academic way. Um, I went and got a PhD in literature from the University of Washington. I taught there and at Antioch University, and I was the co-author of two different guides to books. One was called 500 Great Books by Women, a Reader's Guide, and that was kind of my reaction in the mid-1990s to not seeing as many women in the academic canon as I might have liked. And then we did a children's version called Let's Hear It for the Girls, which was for two to 14-year-olds to get books with strong female protagonists into the hands of younger children. Um, And then I sort of went on a walkabout. Um, I became a mom. I was a stay-at-home mom for a while. We lived in Italy for a couple of years, uh, and I got deeply into food and the culture of Italy. And then we came back to the United States. I was writing for hire and trying to write creatively on the side, not getting anything published um, of my own. And then I made the strange decision that I was going to flip the equation. I had been renovating houses and kind of helping my friends with real estate for free. And I thought, what if I do the real estate for money and the writing for free and see what happens? So I did that. And I wrote a book that a novel that I thought no one but myself and my mother would ever read. And that of course ended up being the one that sold. So I am now the author of four published novels. Uh, The Scent Keeper was my most recent one that was just chosen as Reese Witherspoon's book club pick for February of 2020. And my most recent release is actually a memoir. Uh, So it's my first published memoir um, about a house we renovated back in 2001.
1: And so that really leads to the next question, which is what what led you to write this memoir? Led you to write this book about renovating the house?
2: Well, you know, I actually started writing memoirs. That was the work that was never published. And I wrote an early version of this book back in 2001 when the events were happening. But one thing that I've realized over the, the 15 years um, that it took to actually get this book into the shape that I wanted it to be in is that uh, we often are not great at having the perspective that you need to write a good memoir as the events are happening. So what that version in 2001 did was give me a chance to write down all the details as they were happening. So the fact that the, that House Lessons has a real sense of immediacy and specificity has everything to do with the version that I wrote in 2001. By the time I got to 2015 and had returned to the book to do it again, I had a much different perspective on things. The children I'm writing about in, in the book were now fledged and grown and in one case had a child of her own. And my whole vision of parenting and marriage and what this renovation of the house had meant had really changed and matured and deepened. And so I think that it is a much better book for having waited all that time to actually finish it.
1: So it sounds like if you published it in 2001, you'd still be ready to write a second version of it now.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I would be wishing I could write a second version of it now, that's for sure.
1: One would be the experience of doing it, and the second would be this one, the house lessons.
2: Yes, exactly. And I think one of the things that really changed was that I did so much research and reading in this whole idea of psychology of space and architectural theory and thinking in a more theoretical way about how the buildings that we live in affect who we are and who we can become. And that became a really strong third component of the book. I mean, there's the renovation, there's the family, but then there's also a lot of architectural theory and looking at the culture of architecture because the houses we live in change us just as we change them. And I think that is a fascinating thing to look into.
1: And you you really start to dive right into that concept in that in the chapter one, where you talk about falling in love, you say you aren't looking for a house, you're looking for a home and a home has to fit your soul. Can you say a bit more about about that philosophy and concept?
2: Well, and I think that that's, it's an interesting thing. When I did real estate, which was actually after we had renovated this house, um, one thing that I really noticed is how irrational people are about their choices of the homes they want to live in. You know, we, we, we see a home and we fall in love. It's kind of this instinctual kismet thing more often than not. um, It's very hard to be practical about houses and we don't always know why. And, you know, neuroscientists would tell you that there is a whole lot of processing that's going on in our brains that the conscious part of our mind is never really privy to. And so, you know, we, something in us reacts to the house in my case, the thing that really won me over was this corbel, which is just an architectural flourish that, that goes between the column of a house on the front porch and the roof. And it just is a grace note. Um, the rest of the house was in total disrepair. It had seven and a half tons of trash. The plumbing was live. It was a mess. Um, it was a fun concept to think of taking it on. But the thing that got me was that one little architectural flourish.
1: And you talk about those um, intangibles in a way, those visceral things, and you uh, you mentioned uh, Malcolm Gladwell's work, Blink, um, and you talk about sort of breaking that down a bit into the sort of all, how all your senses inform it uh, about how people make a checklist of what they want in a house, and then they abandon it because they have this very visceral sensory experience of that's the house.
2: Yes, yes. Um, You know, all my work, all my novels have always dealt with the subliminal. Um, It's either been the food or the sense of smell. Um, In this case, it was architecture. And I love looking at the things that we aren't paying attention to and helping my readers learn how to pay attention to them. And so I think when when we look at a house, we do have that list. You know, someone has told us we need to think about how many bedrooms, how many bathrooms. We try to be really practical about it. And yet, you know, our our mind is being flooded with sensory data. And it could be a smell, it could be the feel of a banister under your hand. I mean, honestly, I don't think we're conscious of these things, but something makes us feel at home. And I think it's only later. And if we really consciously try to pay attention, uh, do we figure out what it was.
1: Um. You say in the book, a choice of a home is about who we want to be. And you talk a bit about how you liked who you were as a family when you were in Italy. How did this project to take on this house uh, work towards that goal of who you wanted to be and maybe getting back to what you all had discovered as a family in your time in Italy?
2: So that was, a, it was an amazing time when we lived there. I mean, we, we had been living in Seattle, which is very fast paced, very technologically based. And uh, we had lived in this kind of rambling craftsman. And then we go to Italy and we are in an apartment, probably a third of the size of our house. It had one main living area, um, living room, with these beautiful 10-foot tall windows that looked out to this small valley. And it was the town of Bergamo, which is currently undergoing tremendous, tremendous strain through the coronavirus. Um, And our thoughts are with them. Um, It is a beautiful place. And the view that we had was just lovely, and and all the bedrooms were kind of off the side of this main area, and it and it functioned like a piazza, you know, it brought us all together. And when we moved home uh, to Seattle, we moved into a house that didn't have that area. The front room was dark. It was in the north end. It was um, you had to think about going there. You didn't naturally go there. And we came back to the to the United States. Our, my daughter was going into adolescence, all of a sudden that hit, and the structure of the house just wasn't helping. The kids would just sort of fly off to their bedrooms, and there was no natural gathering place, and I really wanted that. And the, and the thing about the house that we discovered in Port Townsend, which is an American four square, uh, and a four square has four, bed, four rooms down, four main rooms down, and then four rooms up. It's a very efficient economical design. There's no hallways. Uh, Every room leads to the next one through these sort of beautiful partial openings. And as a result, it's a natural, naturally social house with very logical places to gather. And um, for me, I tend to be a rather shy person, very introverted. I don't like social gatherings that much. I get nervous in parties. And a four-square house, because it both is open which allows for flow and encourages flow. But each room is sort of this own little separate, lovely, magical space. So it kind of feels like the house has your back. You know, it's not a great room where you're exposed. There's always a place to kind of feel both safe and able to see everything. Uh, It's kind of a large equivalent of a window seat in that way, where you can both snuggle in, but you get to have a great view.
1: And you you talk about that uh, in your book. You say humans are most comfortable in structures where they can observe and feel safe at the same time. And that's so rare to have both of those in one place. I can see why the Seattle house no longer offered that. And you set out to find a a new home. And you talk about wanting that feeling of piazza in the new home because you're making pasta and trying to lure your daughter home for dinner. Uh, And so you... Tell us how you set about trying to find a new house.
2: Well, actually, neither my children nor my husband wanted to move. I mean, we had just moved back from Seattle and they saw absolutely no reason to relocate. And so we had actually been looking for land. My husband was kind of trying to divert my attention, you know, give her a project, make her look over here. And so we were looking for land that we would build on in 10, 15 years when the kids went off to college. Um, But what happened was we went to the Olympic Peninsula, which is this large tract of land, you know, close to the size of Massachusetts. It's really very large. It's west of Seattle, uh, sort of between Seattle and the Pacific Ocean. And um, it's very rugged. It doesn't have very many people. Um, In fact, our entire county has 33,000 people, and the town of Port Townsend has less than 10. And as we were exploring and looking at these various pieces of land, at the end of every day, every time we were out looking, we would take the kids to Port Townsend because there was a pizza place they liked. And we just found ourselves spending more and more time in the town. And it's a beautiful town. It's one of four architecturally preserved Victorian seaports in the United States. And um, it, it's magical. And we would just start driving around. And one time we were driving around and we happened upon this house that was not for sale. It was in utter, utter chaos. Um, And uh, we wanted it. And that's what happened. I mean, so we went out looking for land and we end up with a four bedroom hoarder house is what it was. Uh,
1: Yes, you even named part of it the yuck room uh, (laughs) because of all the unusual treasures your hoarders left behind. But first you had to go through the process of convincing someone to sell you a house that was not for sale. Do you want to share a bit about that?
2: Yeah, it was a situation where um, when we found the house, we drove by and there was just, there was just stuff everywhere. There were two furnaces and a camper shell and oil drums in the yard. And then the stairs were just covered with stuff. But at the bottom of the stairs was a rotting fruit basket that said happy birthday. And we thought that's a sign that everything is not as it should be inside the house. And we, so we, we called a real estate agent and we said, can you look into this? And she called us back and said, you know, he passed away like two weeks ago. And again, weird timing. And um, there were two heirs. There were two wills that were fighting over the wills. And um, she said, well, we can put in an offer to the, to the estate lawyers, which is what we did. So the house never went on the market. Um, but we had to negotiate. It took about six months of negotiating back and forth. And part of the negotiation um, was that we offered to clean out the trash. uh, And that kind of tipped the scale.
1: And as part of the process of buying it, you had to do the dreaded inspections. And you talk about how your first choice in doing inspections is to walk around without your shoes and really feel the house, you know, viscerally through your socks and, and get to know it. But this was not a house where you were going to do an inspection without your shoes on. Can you tell us a bit about the first time you made it in the
2: front door. Well, that was the other thing, was that we had not really been in the house. Um, we bought it based on what we had seen from the outside, uh, what we hoped that the, it would still have the same layout that a traditional four-square would have. And it did have a beautiful view. We knew that much. But we couldn't even see the view um, from the inside of the house, even once we got in, because there was the, the trash was probably, or the stuff was probably at least hip-high, sometimes chest-high, it kind of had what they call goat trails. If you watched the HGTV hoarder shows, it was very much like that. Um, all the windows were covered with curtains and and you couldn't get to them to open them because there was so much stuff. Um, in the basement, there were these um, all of these coffee cans filled with diesel oil. We had no idea why. Um, we ended up taking out over 100,000 pounds of hazmat materials um, just from the basement and seven and a half tons of crash and stuff from the house. but um, And the house was tilting, which normally is what I'm feeling for when I don't have my shoes on in a house. But I, you didn't need to have your shoes off. You could tell it was six inches lower in the front than the back because there was a downspout that had gone missing and not been replaced. All the water had come down the side of the house, gone underneath the chimney and was washing out all the fill dirt that the house was built on. And so the house was literally leaning uh, with the very heavy chimney pulling it. Uh, and it was, yeah. You know, I, I thought there was a good chance it would go downhill into the neighbor's yard, quite honestly. So the whole
1: part two is titled digging out. <laughs> and the first part you're digging out of is the trash and you bring your children and you all show up trying to to dig out. And you kind of get a surprise at what the the heirs have have taken away.
2: Yeah. And that was part of it was we had said, you know, if there's anything personal that you want to take, um, you should do that. And what they did was they came in and they cherry picked anything of value and left the rest. They opened up the dresser drawers and just dumped the contents on the floor. I mean, it was was really demoralizing in that way because um, I had spent, I I, I don't know, I, I feel as if you need to, to love your house. And when I became a real estate agent later, one of the things I always made sure was that my clients would do something that was nice for their house before they left, whether that was painting or cleaning, or just saying thank you. I mean, like having a, a last dinner where you toast the house, but something um, where you where you leave it with love. And it did not feel like that. And so I felt like our job was to bring the love back to the house. And so we spent that weekend just hauling stuff out. I mean, we literally got all of it out in a weekend, which you can do if you're not saving anything and there was nothing to save. Um, And so we did seven and a half dumpster loads. And um, there's a story I tell that at the end of it, uh, I'm taking the last load of recycling and we have filled every recycling bin in town with the paper from this house. And I have one last truckload that I am taking. And I go by the steps leading to the upstairs. And my husband is sweeping the steps. And I think that he has truly slipped a cog because there is so much work we're going to have to do on the house, including demoing all the plaster and lath, which was going to create more dust than you could imagine. So the idea of sweeping the steps seemed bizarre. But he just said, no, nope, just go to the recycling center, Erica, just go. And so I went. And When I came back, the house was quiet and he was finished and I passed those stairs and I looked up and they were clean and the light was coming in the window at the landing and I could feel the house coming back into itself. I mean, that was exactly what it needed. It needed that moment of love.
1: And you talk about that quite a bit in the book about the theme of listening. And now that the house is cleaned out and it's respected, you talk about the importance of respect for that for the home in all the decisions that you're gonna make. In that moment, you kind of those two things came together. You can start listening to the house and the house is feeling respected.
2: Yes, exactly. And I think that at one point I talk about what's the difference between renovation, remodeling, and restoring. And a restoration is to go back to museum quality, what the house was originally. Remodeling is whatever the heck you want to do, but in the middle is renovation. And I think that that is an incredibly important theme in the book. I think it's also incredibly important when you're dealing with an old home, and yet you want to bring contemporary aspects to it, and that is to respect the design and the character of the original house and to manage to dovetail the needs of its contemporary inhabitants in a way that feels as if it should have it, it had either had always been that way or should have always been that way.
1: And the larger town itself really embraces that philosophy, it sounds like, from what you described, that that there's so much Victorian architecture there. And just even a neighbor who came by and sort of gave you a little story about the importance of the palm trees in the front yard. And and there was a sense of the purpose behind preservation.
2: Yes. I mean it's an interesting town in that. The original thought was that the main railway coming up from Tacoma um, would, could either go to Seattle or it could come to Port Townsend because Port Townsend was the first port of entry as you're coming in from the Pacific Ocean. And back in the late 1800s, it actually made sense that Port Townsend might be the terminus of the railroad. And so there was all this beautiful infrastructure and all these gorgeous houses that were built. And then the decision was made to send the railroad to Seattle instead. And basically, Port Townsend froze. It was kind of like Pompeii It happened. Everything was an architectural Pompeii. Everything got frozen. There was no money to remodel, to change for decades and decades. And so what happened in Seattle was that a lot of the beautiful buildings got torn down in the name of progress. And that didn't happen in Port Townsend because um, no one could afford to do it. And
1: you talk about how uh, the purpose of a home's design is to make us feel alive. And now the house is coming back to life. It's cleaned out. It's getting some fresh air into it. And you have to find an architect and a builder to help you on your uh, process. Can you tell us about choosing them and the process of finding them?
2: Yeah. I mean, I have <laughs> I have very strong uh, beliefs about what I want architects to be. You know, on the one hand, I have such respect for the architects that create what are essentially works of art. Um, They aren't necessarily livable, but gosh, they're beautiful. Um, What I wanted was what I would call a collaborative architect who's kind of the interface between the design of the house and the people that are going to live in it. You know, who pays attention to how these people live and want to live. So that the house both embraces those patterns of living and also encourages better ones. And so um, and when you're dealing with a renovation, you not only need to take into account the needs of the people, but the original design of the house. And we were very lucky in the architect that we got who was able to really look at this four square design and, and change it just subtly. So that it would fit us, um, one example was the kitchen had originally been in one of the four main squares of of the original house, and there had been a butler's pantry and back porch that kind of stuck out on the west side and somewhere along the line that butler's pantry had been remodeled into a kitchen, and the kitchen by the time that we got there was so there had been so many roof leaks, so much grease it was just it was just kind of a hell hole. And we literally cut it off the side of the house with a chainsaw. And so then we had to figure out where's the kitchen going to go because we no longer have a kitchen. All we have is the original square where the kitchen was, which had turned into what we call the yuck room because there was a ton of trash in that room alone. And so I'm talking to the architect and saying, okay, where does the kitchen go? And he said, well, I thought it would go in what I would call the yuck room. And it's like, no, 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 you can't do that. That's a dark room. It doesn't have any views. And he said, well, I would open it up to the dining room so that from the kitchen, you would get that same hundred mile view south to Mount Rainier. And while that is not traditional for a 1909 American Foursquare to have the kitchen open to the dining room, what he did was he adapted those partial openings that went between entry and living, and then living and dining room. And he recreated that feel between the dining room and the kitchen so that it feels entirely natural. And that's the kind of architect I love working with.
1: And you also needed a builder. Can you tell us about hiring your builder and finding him?
2: Um, Well, I, 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 I have a joke, which is Everybody has their list of things of what you need to look for in an architect. You need to make, you know, you need to check your references. You need to look at your, at the, you know, initial estimates, all of those sorts of things. But I have another rule, which is you should never be attracted to your architect because that just causes problems. And particularly because we knew that I was going to be running the project, we needed to find a man who, A, I wasn't attracted to, but B, would listen and respect me. And we were very lucky in the, in the builder that we found.
1: And there was a a third component, though, that was driving all this as well, which was
0: cost.
2: Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah, there were several things that had to go. um, And we were very sad about that. One of the main ones was this beautiful 30-foot stone chimney. Uh, It was literally pulling the house over. And we had to lift the house because the foundation was shot. And you can't lift a house with a wrecked. 30 foot tall stone chimney that weighs tons and tons so we had to take the chimney down and putting the chimney back would have been tens and tens of thousands of dollars which we did not have and could not afford the the foundation itself the the projected costs were already skyrocketing and we knew we couldn't afford to put the chimney back in um, the other side of that was that the interior of that chimney was probably the ugliest fireplace I'd ever seen and when you took the chimney out, What you got was that 100-mile view and sun. And so what the architect did was he put in French doors that were exactly the same size as the partial openings between each of the other rooms and kind of created this feeling that the outdoors was yet one more room of the house. And it's lovely and graceful.
1: You talk about when you're purchasing the house, no one would give you a loan? Right. So that affected some of those decisions as well, because you didn't have the the home loan. You talk about how you were able to finance the house. Do you want to talk about sort of the complexity of that? That the bank said, well, when you get enough of it fixed,
2: then we could give you a a, a mortgage. Right. I mean, it, so here's the thing: if your foundation is shot and your roof is shot, it is really hard to get a loan. That's just the, that's just the way of it, or at least it was in two thousand one. And so we had our retirement fund which was almost exclusively this high-tech stock that a friend had kind of said, oh, you should look at that. And we had gotten it and it was skyrocketing. And it it didn't, I mean, uh, we're not talking millions here, but but it had gone from pennies to dollars. And it was just enough to buy the house. And if we were very smart, do the renovation. And, And, but that meant, Selling our entire safety net. Uh, And so we did it. We just, by that point, we'd been negotiating for six months on this house. We wanted this house so badly. I don't know why. We just did. And so we sold it all. And the kind of astonishing thing that happened was that was 2001, which is when the first real, I mean, one of the big tech dives happened. And within three months, that stock had lost 80% of its value. So if we hadn't sold it, we would have lost everything.
1: Wow. And so with the cost considerations, now you guys have to DIY what you can.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so the builders suggest that you guys might want to handle the plaster. And that's a great story. Do you want to talk about what that was like?
2: Um, it it was nothing I had ever done. Certainly nothing my children had ever done. My husband had had a job um, doing demo in When he was a teenager in St. Louis, so he had some experience, but it was one of those things where you know the contractor just kind of offhandedly said, "Oh, and by the way, you know if you want to save some money, uh, why don't you do that demo yourself?" But we're talking about demoing the plaster and lath in a twenty four hundred square foot house, including ceilings. That's a lot of work, Um, and we and we were going to do it ourselves. So we we brought the kids out, and. We started and we're not really making much progress, you know, because we're, the kids are using hammers and I'm trying a sledgehammer and, and I'm looking at our progress going, well, oh, we are going to be here for years. And, and my daughter was a, a teenager with a lot of energy and a lot of emotions. You know, it's that time of, that's time of life. And I was pre-menopausal, so I had all the energy and all the hormones And there was just a lot of emotion going around our house. And I turned to her and I just said, okay, honey, what makes you angry? And she kind of looks at me and cocks an eyebrow. It's like, I don't care. Use it. Go for it. And all of a sudden we are taken down these walls. And I had no idea what was inside me or inside her. And um, we're all getting into it and it's working because that's the kind of energy you need. And honestly, if anyone has an angsty teenager, I highly recommend demolition as a therapeutic device.
1: Great summer job for them.
2: Yes, absolutely.
1: So you say how many tons of plaster this is. Do
2: you recall? uh... I think it was something like, no, I don't. I remember that by the time we added up the trash and the chimney and the plaster and lath, it was equal to half of the house. So by the time yeah. we got rid of all that stuff, the house that they actually lifted off the ground was half the weight of what we had bought. And that was part
1: of why he encouraged you to, to go ahead and do that, right? The yes. the lighter the house was,
2: the, the easier it was to lift it and the less cost in lifting. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. And it all had to happen at some point. We literally couldn't lift the house with the chimney. So that had to go. With the plaster and lath, and then we took down a good portion of the asbestos shingles on the outside, which are also remarkably heavy. Um, all of that was a way to just make it lighter as we lifted in.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: And so they're doing that so that they can put in a new foundation. Mm-hmm. And so part three is all about really just digging into this whole project, digging into the earth, digging in and getting this done. Um, so tell us about that.
2: Well, and I think the other, the other thread that's kind of going through this whole book is um, the renovation of our marriage and the renovation of my view of parenting. And, you know, by the time that we had finished that demolition, um, some things had happened that were really worrying and almost catastrophic. And I won't, I'll, we'll leave some secrets for people to read in the book. book. Um, yeah. But, you know, it really meant that I had to sit back and reconsider who I was as a parent and who I wanted to be. And I needed to get rid of old ways of parenting that I had been brought up with, um, kind of like I had to get rid of the trash. I mean, there was a lot of that kind of, we need to to move forward with a cleaner slate than what we've got now. And I think part three is a lot about looking at where our behaviors come from and who we want to be as we go forward. And there was a long period where we couldn't get our foundation because the city had never approved a foundation like ours before. Uh, it involved putting galvanized pipe many feet into the ground um, so that it would provide a structure inside that fill dirt so that then the foundation could be attached to that and the house attached to the foundation. Um, and, and literally no one had ever done that in Port Townsend before. And so it took them... Oh, three months to approve our engineering plans. And during that period of time, there was a lot of self-reflection going on and a lot of considering who we would want to be in this house. And I think it was, it was, you know, oftentimes we get frustrated by those pauses, but sometimes some of the best thinking comes out of them. And just so
1: listeners understand, you all at this time period have a house in Seattle, And the house that you're renovating is not habitable. So how are you navigating the difference between those two spaces?
2: I am driving the two hours and the ferry ride back and forth in order to do that. Because, yeah, there was no way we could have lived in it.
1: And you talk about how sometimes you and your husband are only seeing each other as sort of passing the baton in the driveway. One gives an update on what they've accomplished and the other one heads out. Can you talk about what the schedule was like and how you all um, managed to, to negotiate two such separate spaces.
2: Um, it was insane. I mean, and, and what seemed ridiculous was that we went into this because I was missing our feeling of family. And in my effort to try to, you know, get there again, um, I, we were spending less time than we had ever spent together and we were moving at a speed and, um, that was not productive, that was not family oriented in any way. And so um, it, was, it was counterproductive to say the least in that regard. Um, on the other hand, uh, what it allowed was for my husband to be the parent on deck. And my husband is fabulous with teenagers and I am not. I am a control uh, freak and that is not great with a teenager. And so those those couple of days a week that I was not on deck um, gave my daughter a, some room to be herself, and it gave me a place to be myself, um, not as a mother, but as a woman and an individual and someone who was being treated professionally. And I think that distance really made a big difference.
1: And you talk about um, how your and your husband's uh, upbringing, the difference there starts to really Become more apparent to both of you that when he was a teenager, his mother led him bicycle across country, and when you were a teenager, you were trying to make thoughtful, careful decisions. Can you talk a bit about um, how those differences in your personalities are coming out now in this project?
2: Well, and and they always say you know opposites attract, and in that way, we really are. I mean, I was brought up to be very careful. I mean, we did not break rules. Um, we did not break bones. <laughs> I mean, you know, we just we we. Um, you know we were a family where you wore your seatbelt and ben grew up in a family where when he was 13 his sister was 14 his other brother was 16 uh his parents went to do psychological evaluations of um missionaries in Papua New Guinea and the kids were in charge of the house for 3 weeks and there were people that looked in on them they weren't it wasn't completely home alone but um, um I, something like that would never have entered my parents' mind and it would never enter my mind. Um, But it made him the person that he is, which is someone who is willing to take risks. And he rightly says that there is a different kind of risk, but a risk in cocooning your children too heavily. Um, In fact, there's a funny story. I was reading this book to my father-in-law. He was in a rehabilitation center and I was reading him chapters and I read the chapter where I'm talking about the differences in our upbringing and I read this line where I'm talking about Ben bicycling across the country. And, um, and he said, and Ben had said, it was fine. And in italics, I write, yeah, you say that now because nothing happened. And my father-in-law just looks at me and he goes, everything happened. And, and that's the difference is that for, for my husband's family, the risk is that you will not do something, that you will not engage, that you will not get out in the world. And in my family, the risk is you might get hurt. And so I think that a healthy combination of the two of those things is probably the best way to move forward.
1: And you say, as you're going through process after process, when you tell your mom, her response over and over is, you're doing what? You did what? Yeah." Um, And so did she did she keep up that throughout the process, or did she find a place where she felt comfortable with what you all were doing?
2: I think she thought she, we were insane until she saw the finished project. Honestly, um, and she loved this house um, once once it was through. Um, but the expression on her face when she saw it in in mid mid project was priceless. Um, because, and and honestly, I mean. I would not have thought I was the kind of person who could do this, but it just happened.
1: It sounds like a lot of gut instinct led you along this entire thing in a way that's taken you by surprise.
2: So, one of the things that I, I've learned with writing as well is that how much can happen when you learn to trust your gut instinct, whether it's following, following the idea for a character or a plot line, or in this case, just really listening to the things that life was kind of putting in front of me i always know when i'm supposed to work on a book because life starts handing me the people and the the google search uh, you know i'll do I'll, I'll i'll make a typo on a google search and i will get an a link to something that is what i need or i will meet someone who happens to be an expert in the field i'm supposed to be researching for my book life just starts hap- handing me what i need And in the case of this house, I felt like the house was constantly handing me what I needed. It it would have been hard not to go along with the house.
1: You would have been impeding the flow.
2: Uh, Yeah. I had a feeling that the house would reach out and grab me and pull me back in if I tried to leave, quite honestly.
1: (laughs) Well, you talk about some formative early experiences about um, one in particular with your mom and the Christmas tree um, and also at that there were times when you just saw things and you would say, oh, but it needs us. Um, can you talk about how that's part of your personality?
2: Yeah. Um, so when I was a kid, my mom would, we there were five of us kids, and my mom would stick us all in the station wagon and we would drive around Los Angeles looking for a Christmas tree. And we would go from one lot to another lot to another lot. Um, and it had to talk to her. My mom had been an art history major. She'd been a fashion designer before she was a mother. Um, she was an artist although she would never have called herself that and I think that was her it was an aesthetic thing for her that brought her real satisfaction that as a bored kid sitting in the back of a station wagon I had no access to that that feeling that she was having but I really started to understand it once I was working with the house and that feeling that um that there is an aesthetic component to these things. There's an aesthetic component to sledgehammering that that you can feel and have. And it gave me a much wider definition of what art is.
1: And speaking of the aesthetic component, you talk about a couple of things about the house itself. One is when the architect walks in and he says, where is it? And he's earnestly walking around and you said, where is what? And he, he said, the staircase. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that a bit?
2: So traditionally, um, and our house was not what they would call a Sears kit house. For a long time, Sears Sears Roebuck created houses in kits that you could buy that would come on the train. I mean, it went down to paint and nails. Everything you needed, plans, lumber, you name it, would come in a kit and people built these houses. And... Um, we looked and looked to see if there were the, uh, all the timbers would have numbers on them. And we looked and looked. And we, it wasn't that, but we think it was probably built with plans that, that Sears sold because there's a, a very traditional American Foursquare plan uh, that, that Sears developed. But in that plan, there is a front staircase and a back staircase, and the two meet together at a landing halfway up. And I think the, the idea was kind of that the front staircase was the more public family staircase and the back staircase was, I don't know, for for the maid? <laughs> I'm not sure. Anyway, what had happened was the previous owners had taken out the stair the front staircase. Rumor had it they wanted more room for their Christmas tree. I'm not sure. And kept the back kind of cramped and, you know, sort of almost circular staircase going up. And... What that did was I created a weird sort of big rectangular amorphous living room. And it also created this feeling of, um, well, lack of welcome. There's something about a staircase at the front of a house when it's open and bright. And, and it makes you feel as if even if the upstairs is private, it is not being kept away from you even as a stranger walking into the house. And that, that presents a very different feel as you enter a house.
1: And so you all get that staircase put back.
2: We do. That was our one real splurge, was to put the staircase back in.
1: And as you're digging into the house, one of the things that you're you're personally you're doing, you're trying to unearth this orchard that's been overtaken by ivy. Um, can you talk about what that experience was like?
2: Well, you know, it's right up there with sledgehammering in terms of catharsis because um ivy there's nothing that you can do except just pull and, pull and pull and pull and pull and and you have to be careful how you do it so that if it's firmly attached to a tree you're not hurting the tree. But I took out seven dump trucks worth of ivy all smashed down. And what was amazing was um, we thought there were probably four trees, a couple of oh, apples, a couple cherries. In the end, there were 13 trees. We didn't know that, you know, nine of them were in there. That's how much ivy there was.
1: Oh, wow. So you, you refer to it at one point as the secret garden. Is that why?
2: Yeah. Um, and it's a, it still is a very magical place. Um, in the end, um, someone had planted two large evergreen trees, a redwood and a spruce, back to back. And um, they were so close together and they had grown to be about 50 feet tall and they were killing each other. And so we'd had to take them down and that left kind of a gap in the secret garden. And that's where we ended up putting my writing shed was where those trees had once stood. And so it faces into the orchard and that's where I sit to write my books now. And it's beautiful.
1: And finding the person who was going to build your writing shed was another moment of serendipity, wasn't it?
2: It was. And it proved it, I really need to do my research a little more. But um, yeah, I, I was—I had a, an idea of what I wanted for the writing shed. I knew I wanted it to be small, you know, no more than eight by eight. Uh, I didn't want room for a desk. I write in a chair. I mean, basically, I just wanted a, a protected space for my chair down in the orchard And I was driving into town and I saw this building that was exactly what I wanted. And there was this old man that came out and told me it was his office and told me he could build one. And I thought I looked into the workshop and saw these young people and I thought they were his crew and they were not. And this very old man very slowly built my writing shed over the course of about three months when it probably could have taken two weekends.
1: And this whole process of um, first seeing the house and then the negotiations and the renovation itself is a, a fairly long process, isn't it? I mean, until you get to the, the end and the house is done. How long is
2: that process? Well, the renovation itself took about a year uh, and the negotiations took about six months. So it was about 18 months from start to finish. And part of that was because we weren't trying to live in the house. And so you could just go at it. Um, And, and, you know, it could be in as rough a shape as it needed to be in order to move quickly.
1: And so during this time, you kept the Seattle house. Mm -hmm. And when this house that you're renovating is done, you get renters?
2: Yeah. And that's the part that's kind of hard. And that also is probably the reason why it didn't make any sense to write this memoir back in the day, because here we go through all of this. And... What happened was midway through the project uh, we were waiting for the roofers to come and nothing could really happen until the roof was on. You can't put up drywall. You can't you know, do electrical because if it leaks, everything is destroyed. And so we're just on hold again. After being on hold for three months for the foundation, now we're on hold um, for the roof. And it was just waiting and waiting and waiting. Um, and, and i and i couldn't figure out what was going on and so i'm i'm in the house by myself and i and i look at the house and i just said what do you need why won't you let the roofers come and i realized that back when we were sledgehammering the walls i had promised the house that i would put a note in the walls for the next people that found it that would be a welcome or a description of who we were or whatever and i hadn't done that and i realized that's why the drywall can't go on because I haven't put in this put this darn note in there yet. And so I went home and I got pictures of the kids and us and everywhere we'd lived that we loved. And I wrote a note and I brought it back and I was putting it in the walls. And and I realized that in that period of time that it had taken us, because that had been about a year at that point, and the kids had really re back in the United States. They had their friends again, they had roots. They were in Seattle. I had been out in Port Townsend, but they had completely rerouted. And I realized that I could not make them change again. I had been uprooted a lot as a kid, and I, and I couldn't do that. And I loved this house with all my heart and soul, but I was not going to do that to them. And so I made the very difficult decision not to move us. and. The next day, the roofers showed up. (laughs) But the other thing I think that's important, and it's particularly important right now, and we're kind of in the midst of this coronavirus thing, that something that affected my decision that I didn't even realize how much it was affecting it at the time, was that that was when 9-11 happened. Um, I made this decision probably a month after that. And I liked to think that I was moving forward with my regular life, but that event shook our foundation so deeply emotionally uh, in our vision of who we were as Americans and as human beings and our vision of what was safe and what was not safe. And I think the downline emotional repercussions of that were huge. And I think that had a lot to do with why I made that decision. I, I wanted my family first and I knew that they were happiest where they were. And so we made the decision that we we, w- we wouldn't sell the house because we loved it too much. We could just afford to keep it if I got a job when I got back and um, we rented it out. And that's what we did for 10 years until the kids were out of college and we could move. And
1: so the job when you got back, was it the job that was inspired by this renovation?
2: Um, that was the real estate job. Yeah. Because I realized yeah. I loved houses. I loved working in houses. I also realized I could make more money working with houses than I could writing for hire. And so I went into a real estate and like I said before, that really gave my, my writing the freedom to be whatever I wanted to be. And that created much better books.
1: But eventually you do end up at the house.
2: We do. We do. Um, there were two times. One was after I'd sold my first novel and I was it was a two-book deal. I had to write the second book. I didn't really even know what the second book was going to be. And out of the blue, our renters called and said, Hey, we need to leave early. And I asked my husband, I said, Okay, I just I I just got in advance for School of Essential Ingredients, my first novel. We've got a little more money. What do you think about my going out and using the house in Port Townsend? Just a couple days a week, like as an office. And I'll just write out there. And it's a long commute for an office, but I think it'll work. And, and that's what we did. And it was this astonishing space. There was nothing in the house. All the walls were white. There wasn't a picture to be had. There was a futon on the floor and a folding table and a couple of chairs and a couple of pots. That was it. No internet, no nothing. And when I went out there, all I did was write. And it was, I always say that was my emptiest nest because the kids were off in college. And, um, I had to figure out who I was again and the house gave me the space to do that.
1: And your final chapter, cause I want to make sure we have time for that is what you call the dinner.
2: Can you tell us about how you've got everybody gathered and you're
1: doing this wonderful dinner?
2: Well, and that was, um, after we were able, after my husband and I were able to sell the house in Seattle, which we had to wait a long time because the 2008 crash happened. And so we couldn't really sell our house until about 2012. And so we moved out full time to the house in Port Townsend. And, you know, what we'd always wanted was to make sure that it was a house that could expand to fit guests and yet would feel the right size for two people as well. And that's exactly what this house does. And so we have this this tradition that we call Pasta Fest. It's our remake of Thanksgiving. And it is our kids and their friends and their in-laws. And it's just a pig pile of people. And we make pasta all day long. And then it is this long multi-course, every course is pasta <laughs> meal that we do. And, and it was my vision that I had had when we first found the house. Um, I was remembering being in Italy and being at those long Sunday lunches, you know, with generations of people sitting around a table, and that was what I had always wanted. And it took a long time; it took twelve years, but we got it in this house.
1: And tell us about the dinner guests who are there.
2: Well, um, they are are now grown children. Um, my daughter, by that point, had bought a fixer uh, that was in such bad shape she wouldn't even show it to me. <laughs> Um, and I love when, that
1: part of the story. And when
2: it's I so saw it, I just went, what? Are you kidding? Just like my mother had said to me, I say it to her. And of course, she has all, you know, my mother's artistic vision and all my ability to just get in there and do it. And their house is now a beautiful thing, of course. And so she's in the kitchen telling stories. And my son has become this fabulous pasta creator. And and he is doing the pasta rolling. And then all of their friends, like these are friends that they've had since middle school who have become part of our family. And then my daughter's in-laws. And it was just a bit of everybody, honestly. And I believe Rebecca was there, who was one of the people helping you destroy plaster and pull it out. Is that right? Yes. So she was a friend of my daughter's in middle school. And she had come that weekend and helped us with the plaster. And she's not a very big person, but boy, could she wield a sledgehammer. She was great. And she had not seen the house since, um, since that day. And so of all the people who were there, the rest of us had kind of our memories had become diffused over time because we had brought other memories and we were used to living in the house as it was now. But seeing her face when she walked in and saw how it had changed was, was just a wonderful, wonderful thing.
1: So you open the book with this wonderful quote that says "He who loves an old house never loves in vain and that's where you start the book with and apparently the book started back really in 2001 as a as your notes in real time and here we are almost 20 years later with the completion of your memoir uh, was any of that love in vain or do you do you embody that quote now when you're in that house
2: oh I think it's I think it's utterly true you know I really do um, I think you have to be. A particular kind of person to be a renovator, and not everybody wants to be. Um, I tell the example of when I was in real estate, and I would ask my clients how they wanted, how they cooked in a kitchen, because I think there are people who, you know, they only want to do takeout or go to restaurants, and those people they are not going to want to be renovators. They're going to want a new house. They're going to want trouble free. And then, um, but the people who are renovators are the people that can. They they love to open a refrigerator and go oh my gosh, I have a bit of this, a bit of this, a bit of this, all these leftovers. What can I make that's new and exciting and fun? And, and there's a lot of caretaking in that, you know, we're the same kind of people that pick up stray dogs, you know, um, we are maternal, and you can be male or female and have that kind of maternal instinct, I think, but that, that desire to take something and make it better. And I think in a way That really was what I was looking for in this house. I didn't realize it until I was rewriting this book in 2015 that it seemed so strange that my reaction to coming back from Italy, where everything was so beautiful and aesthetic and um, steeped in tradition, was to buy the ugliest house you could see. And yet it made perfect sense that the way to come home was to take something that nobody was taking care of and to turn it back into what it had once been and to make it a house that you could pass down through generations.
1: That is a lovely way to sum up the book and and the philosophy of the book. We have a few minutes left. Would you like to tell us about uh, your current project or a future one that you have going? What are you doing out in your writing shed that you'd like to tell us about?
2: (laughs) Well, you know, it's a really interesting time to be a writer because nobody knows. You know, if if you're someone who's listening to this 18 months from now, you know what the future looks like. But right now we don't. You know, we don't know if there's going to be a vaccine in six months and everything goes back to normal. And we all kind of shake our heads like, well, that was a bad dream. Um, Or if our society is going to be completely different. And writing into that is a very strange concept. And so anything you write, um, you kind of have that in the back of your mind. So I can't exactly tell you what I'm working on, except to tell you that it's it's a novel. It's in the opening stages, and I've learned not to talk about those things. But I think one of the things that I am working with is the concept of right now, I look at our world, and I see... People, different people watching the same thing, a newscast, a a, a Facebook post, a, a, a picture and getting such completely different things out of it. And that's kind of the basis of the book is how do we, how do we work? How do we, how do we talk across those differences? How do we acknowledge that there's more than one way to see anything in our world?
1: Oh, that sounds lovely. And it sounds like it uh, builds on some of the themes that you were really talking about in house lessons, about listening, about uh, empathy, about imagining more than one possibility. You talk about how you and Ben had sort of imagined what what the possibility was for the kitchen. And yet when the architect presented it, you were both like, oh, we mm-hmm. like that. We thought not of that. Mm-hmm. Um, So it sounds like whatever you're going with now, and I look forward to hearing about it in the future. Hopefully you'll come back and tell us when you're ready about your new book. Um, Sounds like it will be incorporating some of those lovely themes that you laid out for us in um, in your house lessons and the things you learned while you were renovating a life.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it was interesting. One time a friend of mine said, you know, we always write the same book over and over. And if you were going to be right, if you were going to say what the book is you write over and over, what would it be about? And I would say, It has everything to do with paying attention to the subliminal, the things we're not paying attention to, but also above all, every book that I write is the basis of it is compassion. And I think that that is, you know, if you can have compassion when it comes to an architectural project, that's exactly what I was doing.
1: That's lovely. Thank you for, for sharing your time with us today and telling us about your book. Again, this is New Books in Gender. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and we've been talking with Erica Bauermeister about her memoir, House Lessons, Renovating a Life. Thank you, Erica.
2: Thank you.